Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. So great to be with you today. I'm Dr. Fujian Zain, psychotherapist and author and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. Our heartfelt chat is about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. For um, all of you beautiful people who are constantly asking about, hey, what's going on next? It's our Fujon app is out. It's launched. You can get the app from um, the Google Store or Apple Store. Uh, just look for Fujon app, F-O-O-J-A-N app. Uh, this app, what it does for you is it will take you through the awareness integration theory, um, specifically all the interventions, all the six phases, and uh, it will support you to go through um, different areas of your life. Every month, you've got three different areas where you can work magic and become aware. Uh, some of the phases will help you integrate. You'll find out what skills you don't have. You can go to the library of all the experts and gain a lot of skills and do goal setting for the future. And you can also find support with um, certified um, therapists and coaches um, through the awareness integration therapy. So go get Fujian app. In this episode, I'm so honored to chat with Dr. David Graben. He's a neuroscientist, a board certified psychiatrist, a health tech entrepreneur, and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He's the co-founder and the chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. Guess what? I'm wearing it right now. It woke me up this morning, and um, it's an amazing tool to have. Dr. Dave Raven has always been fascinated by consciousness and our inherent ability to heal ourselves from injury and illness. As such, he has specifically focused his research on clinical translation of non-invasive therapies for patients with treatment resistance illnesses, such as post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorder. Dr. Raven is also a co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine, which is a nonprofit organization of physicians and scientists establishing the first peer-reviewed evidence-based clinical guidelines for the production and safe use of currently unregulated alternative medicines, including plant medicine. The Board of Medicine trains um, and certifies healthcare providers and provides quality control um, standards for complementary and alternative medicine to support high-quality clinical research, best practices, and risk, uh, risk reduction. He is also a clinical, uh, he has his, a clinical psychiatry practice and currently conducting research in epigenetic regulations of trauma response and recovery to elucidate the mechanism of psychedelic assistance, psychotherapy, and neurology of belief. It is an amazing conversation. It's a, I couldn't stop conversing with him. He is so, um, he's so rich 
and um, in, in, in content and in, in, in information. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Subscribe to this podcast, um, my YouTube channel, connect with me through all of um, my social media and my website, fujanzane.com. Um, don't forget, go get the app, Fujan app, or go to fujan.com to get to know about the app. Now, without further ado, here is Dr. Uh, David Raven. Dr. David Rabin, it is so nice to have you on the show. It's so nice to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me. I have had the opportunity of um, of meeting you. Actually, this is the first time I meet you uh, kind of in person via Zoom. Uh, we've had um, conversation together and we are uh, writing a paper together. Uh, you have an amazing background, which is fascinating to me because you are doing a lot of amazing research in different arenas, some of it in the plant medicine and psychedelics and, you know, the effects of psychedelics on mental health. And you also um, have created a device that um, it also helps with a different mechanism um, within the body and mental health. So I want to explore all of it today. Where would you like to start? Uh, well, anywhere you like. <laughs> I think I think it really starts with safety. Okay. Right. I think that's the story that we all should have been taught when we were kids about the neuro the the fundamentals of how our nervous system works, which is that we have our part of our nervous system that is involved in our day to day functioning that we're paying attention to right now, like the, the part that's listening to the sound of our voices and the part that's tuning into the show and the part that's engaged in the conversation is our conscious part that's that we're in control of at any moment. And then there's the parts that lie underneath, which we call the autonomic nervous system, which is broken down into, as you know, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for rest, digestion, immunity, uh, reproduction, and uh, everything that's empathy, everything that's important for recovery and, and bonding and enriching our lives. And then there's the sympathetic system, which is plays an equally important role, if not more important, which is to keep us alive and to be responsible for the fight, flight, or play dead response in certain cases where we're trying to escape from some threat that would actually compromise our survival. And so if we are the, the reason why this is so important to understand is because the body, our bodies only have so many resources to go around, right? We only have so much blood flowing in our in our arteries and veins. And so if we are always in a threat state, the way the body gets us out of survival mode and out of threat is it directs all resources, all blood flow, as you know, to uh, heart, lung, skeletal muscles, the motor cortex of the brain, the fear center of the brain, the parts, the occipital cortex, the parts that are the parts that are important to detect threat and get out of that situation to safety as quickly as possible, right? Because with, if we don't want to be thinking about reproduction or empathy or digestion when we are potentially running from a predator or like a lion, right? That would result in a very unfortunate situation and no reproduction down the road. If so, we don't want to be distracted in those situations. So when we have blood flow going in those places, 
to get us to safety, that's important. And then once we get to safety, we want the blood vessels to the skeletal muscles to constrict a little bit, which then sends blood flow back to the reproductive system and the digestive system and the immune system and the sleep and recovery systems that are important, essential for being healthy. And we need to make sure we maintain that balance. And so tools like Apollo um, that I'm wearing here and tools like meditation, breathwork, mindfulness, et cetera, and also psychedelic medicines when used properly have ways of helping to restore that balance for us, which helps improve overall health, which is really exciting. It's very important what you're saying is um, that we're not necessarily always in a, a, a place of predatory, but because we're human being, um, we also perceive a lot of what's happening from us, maybe from a predatory perspective, like we're in a job and we're, you know, competing or uh, we're afraid of things or uh, if we're on the road. So somehow as the minute that we wake up and listen to the news and the war and everybody's killing each other and all of that, somehow we put ourselves in a state of consistently surviving the day. Right. And there are different things that we are actually needing in order for us to calm us down and um, pick up, kind of ignite the uh, the relaxation and then therefore going to sleep. So first, since we talked about Apollo and this conversation, uh, how does Apollo work? Because you also, as I was reading about it, it has the sensory of touch. Does the touch itself uh, calm us down and let us know that we're safe? And is that where the device starts um, kind of by touching and signaling to our skin, letting us know that, hey, the world is safe, you can calm down now? Yeah, exactly right. And and touch is really interesting because it's one of our oldest signals of safety from the early, early days of mammalian development, right? We're all held by our mothers and and we're you know coddled in a way that conveys safety when there's no other way to really convey it from mother to child because the infant especially newborns are completely and utterly defenseless right and they've just left their place of complete safety and now they're in the real world and they have to breathe and do things for themselves and so there's a lot of you know trauma that happens physically to a baby as it's being born. And so that bonding experience through touch is something that is not unique to humans. It actually goes back probably tens of millions of years to the earliest mammals. And so it's in, in that way, it's hardwired into our system that being touched in a nice way calms us down very, very quickly. And in doing so, it boosts vagal tone meaning it increases the activity in that recovery nervous system. And there have been a number of studies that have shown this and measuring, you can measure it by looking at heart rate coming down and, and respiratory rate coming down and becoming deeper and blood pressure coming down and people feeling self, you know, self reports of people feeling calmer and all of these things going together strongly suggests that there is a boost, especially when it's reliable, there's a boost in this recovery nervous system activity. And we know that touch also increases neurochemicals that are positive for recovery, like endocannabinoids, which are our natural cannabinoid molecules we make in our bodies, endogenous opioids, like um, and, and endorphin molecules that are our natural pain relieving molecules, and also serotonin, dopamine, of course, right? And all of the, and, and oxytocin, which facilitates bonding, all of these neurochemicals are able to be released when we are, and when we are experiencing soothing touch. And this is 
you know, a lot of what targets our reward center and makes us feel good. So it's not that surprising that this has, that touch has this effect on us. Um, like any soothing experience can help, can provide it, but touch is extremely uh, a potent way to activate the safety response in the body. Um, and it's also something that we don't tend to get enough of in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and, and it has this dramatic impact in that it's also not, we're not taught about it that much. So it doesn't really, in medical school and medical training, we don't really talk about therapeutic touch in the same way that it used to be taught, you know, way back in, in the history of medicine. And I think as we grow up, we lose that uh, concept of uh, being able to touch, like in, beside mates that at times create a touching environment. And that's most, mostly around sensuality and sexuality. But the concept of um, a, a bonding touch or a comforting touch uh, gets less and less between people as they grow up from childhood to teenagehood even. Right. Uh, and when some societies, I think mostly in Western societies, it becomes less than maybe even the Eastern societies or Middle Eastern societies, which touches a little bit more into, you know, into each other's boundaries, yeah. that becomes less. So the Apollo creates um, the effect of touch. Yeah, so it, but using gentle vibrations, which are sound waves, we figured out how to send signals to the skin that feel like touch, like soothing touch, which are gentle, sa gentle sound waves that you can feel that that oscillate up and down at a rhythm that helps our heart and our lungs get into a state of of flow or of presentness, um, which is effectively what we strive for when we practice meditation, and so by nudging the body and and we know that this works from music as well the neuroscience of music shows that you can introduce a certain rhythm into the body we know from people dancing right for thousands of years people have used music to help us change our own rhythm and help us move and help us feel different and so apollo is effectively music composed for the skin instead of the ears that helps nudge the body up slightly up or slightly down if you're trying to focus or you're trying to sleep um, and the sound waves are customized to each state. And you can basically choose what state you like to be in and schedule it. And then it turns on and helps you uh, be in a more focused state in general. So for me, I use, I always use social and open uh, mode, which is my like public speaking mode for me when I'm giving presentations, because it just helps me be more in the moment with what I'm doing and not think about it so much. I would assume uh, that it really lowers anxiety too. You've done research on uh, how much it has uh, reduced anxiety. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's the main, especially helps people cope with anxiety better because you're less, more in your body and less in your head overthinking it. Um, but we did uh, one study in particular, we've done a, a number of, of studies that have looked at anxiety as an outcome metric, but one study in particular looking at nursing staff working in nursing homes that I thought was really interesting, which is because that's one of the most stressful jobs that nurses have to work and the shifts are long and they're very hard and, and, you know, questionably rewarding at times. And, um, and so they, uh, wore Apollo for two weeks and within two weeks of use without any instruction other than a pamphlet that we handed them with the guidance, they they had a, using a clinically validated anxiety score, they were scoring 40% lower just after two weeks of use. My brain is going all over the place. I'm thinking 
all of the um, all of the uh, mental disorders or emotional disorders that are fueled by anxiety, such as addiction, such as um, eating disorders, such as traumas of people who have been physically abused or um, sexually abused, um, OCD. Uh, PTSD. I mean, I look in, I'm looking at all of these things with the basis of all of these are anxiety, how much um, this device could support and how much research is needed in all of these areas to see um, how a, a healing touch um, or, or the device that brings the body to that space and brings, you know, promotes the parasympathetic to uh, get ignited for someone who has been so traumatized that all that their body is used to is getting them in alert mode, alert mode, alert mode. And, you know, not, um, there isn't enough, let's say, cognitive conversation that could calm them down. And sometimes it doesn't, it even gets them more into that. Right. But how much such a device would actually be beneficial for that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's why we made it, right? And I, for those who don't know, you know, my background, I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and I've been studying uh, trauma and addictions for um, uh, the last 10 years and chronic stress for almost 20 years and really just seen this huge challenge that we're facing with folks in these with these disorders, especially addiction and PTSD, where anxiety is a core component and the anxiety is not addressed effectively and the trauma or whatever happened to them that's at the core of their experience has created or maybe sometimes multiple things has created a, a fear response it's lasted a really long time and much longer than was intended to originally and so they their body expresses that right the they're they're sweating more often they're racing thoughts they uh hyper vigilant they're always like looking around looking for threat they uh, have a higher resting heart rate, lower heart rate variability, uh, and, and they're just generally, you know, not not present and because they don't feel safe. And that is given, you know, what has happened to them, you might not expect that to be that strange, right? But when you start to work with people in that environment like we do, and we start to do the psychotherapy and start to help people understand they are safe, they're safe with us. We can hold safe space for them and we can give them tools like Apollo that, that help guide that experience where they can take that safety that they feel in the office with us home, right? Then they can they can continue the process, the, psychother the psychotherapeutic process, the therapy work, the medicine that we, and the medicine work that we do in traditional Western practice. And they can take that home with them and have an easier time because they have something that helps them remember how to self-soothe. Because most people just don't remember breath work or meditation when they're stressed out. And most of us never learned it when we were kids. So it's it's so much harder to learn it when you're an adult, let alone when you're an adult with PTSD or anxiety disorder, right? It's and just so much fun. trickier. Yeah. And to be honest with you, a lot of people who have um, anxiety and uh, they've been traumatized before that the minute they come into this meditative state, they actually get flooded with a lot of the thought and visions and things and they can't stand it. I mean, it takes huge amount of training for someone who is anxious or has been traumatized to actually get to sit into their own space until they pass through this and they can kind of like train their body and brain to get there. But at the beginning, it's very, very difficult. So uh, a supportive device like this can really work in their advantage of getting them to a space where they can actually calm down 
physiologically before they can get into a training of their own mind into the system of, you know, how they want like to say something and then their body listens. But at the beginning, their subconscious is having too much conversation for them to even be able to handle it. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And if your body's in a fear state, when our bodies are in a fear state, because of any reason, we naturally oppose change, right? We naturally oppose newness because newness appears threatening and familiarity feels safe. And so then we pursue things, even if they're unproductive, like smoking or drinking or, or whatever, video games, right? Netflix binging, right? The things that aren't necessarily great for us, but we do it to for relief because- it's we just familiar. avoid. If that's yeah. a part of avoidance, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't heal anything. We'll just right. avoid it for a little while. Right. But it's familiar. So it feels safe. And so remembering that there are actually much healthier ways to remind us that we're safe so we, we don't go for those vi- vices or the things that aren't actually helping us. We can realize we have a choice. We can do you know, we could do do some breathing or do some stretching or go for a walk or you know, turn on my Apollo or any other number of things that we can do. Practice gratitude, right? There's so many things that we can do that can help us to enrich ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than taking away. So taking this now going into um, the the psychedelics, what got you interested? I know I've noticed that a lot of um, obviously psychiatrists and neuroscientists are, um, past, let's say, 10, 20 years have gotten more into the conversation of wanting to do research in psychedelics. So obviously in the 60s, you know, at Harvard, we had that. And um, uh, I still listen to Ram Dass after after he moved on to uh, his spiritual world. And, um, and, and yes, there was a huge, you know, backlash. And then now we're seeing the Western science coming back into this concept of let's do research let's really look at and let's not be afraid of it let's really see how it can support us and uh, obviously there's a lot of research that's happening right now in john hopkins um, map and uh, berkeley institute and there's a lot of different institutes that are doing um, a, a lot of amazing amazing research what got you interested in this field i think the main thing that got me interested was just practicing medicine and seeing that in mental health in particular, that a lot of our treatments were just not working well for people and our patients were just not getting better. And when you're a physician or a clinician working with, you know, people with mental illness in particular, and, and you're spending a lot of time working with them and you're tracking your own personal metrics of how well you're doing as a clinician based on your outcomes and you're doing what the book says but it's not actually getting the outcomes you were told that you were supposed to be getting then you know you start to look at the literature and see you know naturally as an you know an inquisitive person i'm like what are other people saying right what are what's what what is uh what are the other psychiatrists and psychologists seeing what are they writing about and it became very clear that there were lots of other people like me who were you know practicing psychi- west you know western psychiatry by the book and a lot of their patients were not getting better with the treatments or at least not getting better long term with the treatments that we were offering and that it was also becoming clear that psychotherapy talk therapy combined with medication is much, much better than just medication alone, which I think is something that a lot of people often don't understand. And even a lot of physicians still don't understand necessarily or fully have internalized. But 
all, even even SSRIs work better with psychotherapy, like 20% better. So it works better. We get closer to our goal outcome when we have psychotherapy. Unfortunately, most antidepressants are just prescribed alone, right? And there's not a lot of talk therapy involved. There's not a lot of processing work. There's not a lot of a lot not a lot of stuff that we do on the psychotherapy level um, to actually get to the heart of what's going on. So, and that doesn't seem to work very well. So, all that taken together, I started to naturally look for anything else that could work. And when I started to investigate other disciplines, other Western techniques, you know, psychoanalysis um, and uh, other psychotherapy techniques as like psychedelic psychotherapy, it became very clear that there was a lot out there that was very promising. And in 2012, one of my uh, good friends and colleagues in uh, the medical center sent me a folder of papers that had a whole bunch of psychedelic research in there. That was pub that were really incredible studies published by, uh, you know, wonderful, really talented investigators from you know world class institutions with uh, great, great journals. And I was reading these papers, and I'm like, this is this is the real deal. You know, this is people actually studying new therapies for hard to treat mental illnesses. Um, and I had always wanted to study consciousness as a kid and, and thinking and meaning. And, and this was my opportunity to do it because that's what was happening with these people as they were having these experiences. And so, um, it was just all, all at once in 2012, I kind of made my decision that this was the field that I just had to pursue. So one of the experiences that I hear that it's a lot there and, um, uh, and as an experience is this delusion of separation, which we hear a lot in the spiritual world, but this delusion of separation and then coming back into a space of um, of oneness. So there's, a, um, there's something beyond just a, the regular thought process that you get into uh, a thought process plus a lot of amazing imagery and symbol symbolism. And um, it's almost like everything that is already there, it shows up and it connects itself. So, and many of the research has shown that it actually, when they've done the uh, functional MRIs as uh, they're use, utilizing like psilocybin or LSD, um, I don't know if I've ever heard that they've done that with ayahuasca, but that uh, they actually see that the connections into the different areas of the brains are getting created. So, um, is it more about how these connections support each other in the area of recovery or healing some of the, let's say, mental disorders, um, such as like depression or addiction or anxiety and some of these which have uh, really um, done the research on? Is that where you see the mechanism of this working? That's a really good question. Uh, I think that there is a big, it's a big answer, but it starts with Eric Kandel's work on memory and how we, who Eric Kandel won the Nobel prize in 2004, uh, discovering the mechanisms of learning and memory for not just humans, but also going all the way back to ancient animal, ancient animals, like these three, 300 million year old sea snails that only have 12,000 neurons, whereas we have billions of neurons and our memories are formed in a very similar way, which is really, really interesting. Um, and so he was able to figure out in large part how we form memories. And then that information 
can kind of be distilled down into a practice makes perfect model of thinking around memory, which means that the more we do anything, the better we get at it. And the reason why we get better at it is because as we practice anything, doing something like um, washing dishes or uh, doing something like learning how to play piano or um, thinking about ourselves in a certain way, like I am a nice person versus I am a bad person and I don't deserve love, things like that. Those kinds of actions, every and, and every action, but actions like that all create neural networks in our brain between those thoughts and our identity and sense of self. And so every time we think about me as being somebody who's good at piano, but also a crappy person and not worthy of love, the better I get at thinking about myself in those ways and, and including internalizing those concepts of what, what psychoanalysis calls like almost object relations um, or object identity. And it's like this object identity relationship where we start to be relating ourselves to somebody who's not worthy of love so that every time we think about ourselves, we think about, oh, well, that's Dave. He's not worthy of love, right? And it, it just gets in, ingrained in our neural networks so deeply that we forget where, we can forget where it comes from even. It just becomes part of us. And the reason why that happens is because our brains are these brilliant miraculous automation machines they are extremely capable of of learning and automating pretty much anything but we were taught to automate those thoughts or those things and do those things and those things might not serve us so we have to update the automation machine we have to rem remember that it needs to be revised and upgraded and so what ends up happening in the state where we've trained ourselves to think about ourselves in a in a not good way like for example I, rather than saying, I feel depressed, which means I feel depressed right now, we start saying something like, and, and you'll notice the way I use words is very important because words have meaning and then that meaning gets ingrained into our brains through sense, through hearing it and in, in internalizing it. So if I say, I feel depressed, it means I feel depressed right now. If, if you say, I am depressed, then what we're saying is, I am a depressed person. Subconsciously, that's what we're saying, whether we realize it or not. And when we say I am depressed, and those are the words we choose to use, that can mean I am depressed, meaning my identity is depressed before, during, and after this moment, right? Which means that it potentially applies across time. And the more we think about ourselves that way, the more we start to think, well, I am a depressed person. So this is just the way I am. And we see this thinking a lot in our depressed patients. It's a very, very common way of thinking. That way of thinking gets parceled together into our brains in a network called the default mode network, which is the network that relates our sense of self, self-identity to decision-making for the most part, I, um, ego, uh, preservation, self-preservation, and all the concepts and thoughts and ideas of the way we were taught to think about ourselves in the world that connect to each other and talk to each other on a regular basis. It's not exactly the same in all of us, but it's pretty close to the same in most people because we were all taught to think about ourselves in the world in a very similar way, which is really interesting. And so these parts of the brain are what's active at rest when we're just kind of sitting there. And we call that the default mode network, which is what pops up on neuroimaging. And it involves a whole bunch of parts of the brain. All of a sudden you introduce a psychedelic medicine or a psychedelic drug. Uh, it, and, then in all, and then all these parts of the brain that normally talk to each other um, 
which, oh, and also you could do this with a, with a meditate. People do this in meditation states as well. Um, we've seen these parts of the brain change. The network that we call the default mode network, which is effectively the default way we were taught to see ourselves in the world, starts to dissolve, meaning that the part the way the parts of the of that network that we're talking to each other are now talking to each other in different ways, not necessarily less, but different. And they're talking to different parts of the brain that wouldn't weren't normally part of that conversation. So meaning that that's where the idea of synesthesia comes from, from psychedelic experiences, which means being uh, having like a, uh, being able to see smells, right? Or being able to smell colors. You wouldn't normally think about that because we wouldn't normally experience that in our day to day. But when you have different parts of the brain talking to each other or parts of the brain talking to each other in ways they wouldn't normally talk to each other, then, and the default mode network around self and ego is not as dominant or, or it's off entirely, all of a sudden you start to have like cross wiring happen, which isn't, isn't necessarily bad. It actually may promote neuroplasticity or the building of new neural networks in the brain, which is why people can have these experiences and learn so much from them and then actually come out with 12 weeks later after having some psych a few psychedelic experiences with a tra trained therapist, they can have a, you know, a new take on life and and no more PTSD and 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 really great outcomes because we're literally working with them to help the the patient rewire in a lot of ways rewire this the way that or the way that their their hardware their brain is working to change their thinking and the medicine is like the molecular assistant that helps us get there. And as I assume and I've heard uh, from people and my own experience is that there's also a change in. Uh, it's almost like there's a change in the chemical aspect and somebody who has been depressed for such a long time, uh, suddenly they don't necessarily experience the same sort of depression or anxiety. So something um, very deeply changes um, into the system versus just a shift in a thought process, let's say. Right. I mean, it depends, you know, there are certain experiences that people, I mean, if, if you're talking about the, the therapeutic experience with a psychedelic medicine delivered with in the, in the proper way that we deliver or with, you know, in the maps model in general, you're going to have those kinds of outcomes. Yes. Where there's actually dis very distinct, very clinically and statistically significant changes that are reflected in are likely going to be reflected in neural in, in neuro neuroimaging, although I don't think we've we've seen those studies yet, but we would very be very likely to see changes in that way. Um, I think that there yeah. are other there are other situations where people might have less of less of an experience or have a negative experience. It could go the other way when it's in an uncontrolled environment. So it really just depends on you know what what the what the person's open to the participant and the environment around them as well. So, for example, a um, couple of experiences where I was working with a client who um, had been on opioids for almost 10 years, a high dosage. And every time she um, got um, uh, went on Suboxone and came out um, and was cleaned up from the physical aspect, she experienced this tremendous amount of um, and depression and she couldn't move. Um, so a lot of times this was the... Uh, the cause of her coming back into um, opioids so that she could, you know, and actually it was interesting because the opioids were um, behaving as a stimulant for her 
after a while because if she didn't have it, she would be really going down. And with, uh, I think, three sessions of ketamine, um, she no longer had that depression at all. And although like she she was sober for one year, that was helpful because of the ketamine. And then even when she relapsed for a short period of time and then went back into recovery, that depth of depression that I had witnessed with her for so many years never showed up again. That's amazing. And that was after three sessions of ketamine and, you know, with therapeutic that she had. Um, I've also spoken with people who've had um, experiences with ayahuasca in Colombia and, and uh, different uh, locations with kind of similar concepts with after having, um, you know, like two dosage or three dosage of, of uh, the ayahuasca, that the way that the, like their default position was always going into the deep well of, if the world doesn't work, I want to die, you know, and they go into that deep essence. Those conversations, thought processes, emotion never showed up again for them. So a lot of shift had happened into uh, just with even small dosage, again, yes, you're absolutely right. We're talking about a therapeutic modality. We're not just talking about, you know, somebody on a party having whatever dose they want. And, you know, um, <clears throat> obviously the set and the setting are very important. Intentionality is important. Who's there is important. Integration is important. But there's also I, me not doing research just with my clients. I've seen this, which was um, amazing uh, results. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's pretty tremendous. And uh, I think the there is something that's happening that whether it's with ketamine or MDMA or psilocybin, that people have an experience of deep self-reflection and self-connection and safety. I think the safety is critical because the molecule amplifies, the psychedelic molecule amplifies whatever comes in. And that's why they're often referred to as non-specific amplifiers of awareness. So you can you can make yourself more aware of negative stuff or positive stuff or neutral stuff. It's not really you know directed necessarily in any one place. Um, but the you know every medicine has its own nuances, of course. But ultimately, being able to use ketamine and MDMA in that way is changing the brain. And, and the way it seems to be doing that is by empowering the patient through the therapy practices to remember that the source of healing comes from within us, right? It doesn't, doesn't come from anything outside of us. And this is like one of the inherent struggles with addiction is that we spend our whole lives trying to bring ourselves to a state that we don't necessarily believe we can get to on our own, or we haven't trained ourselves to get to on our own. But those states are states we always have access to. We're born having access to them. They just need a little practice to get to. Um, and so these tools are ways that we can help people remember that experience like Apollo, you know, it helps you remember what it feels like to feel safe in a stressful situation. And then all of a sudden you can realize that you have a lot of choices here and you don't have to make the same decision you made all this time that might not have been the best one. So part of it is romanticizing the mood process. Another part is also as uh, clinicians and scientists, we want to be a little bit realistic about uh, people if they're not using it in an appropriate setting or that what are some of the, um, you know, cautions that people need to actually look at. I've also, although the other side of it has been that um, I've 
work with people where they have utilized this and they've um, gone beyond a certain threshold and they've become kind of desensitized or depersonalized. And then, so then they're very afraid of somehow, you know, I feel like I'm not part of who I am. I'm not in my body. I don't experience myself. And it feels like I'm hovering uh, from above and I don't know how to come back and connect with my body. Or um, obviously with, uh, with, you know, THC or some of even um, LSD and the psilocybin, people who made of predisposition of a genetic with schizophrenia or um, well, some of these hallucinatory may have might have activated some of those genes or, um, you know, they've had bad trips or they've had an experience where, um, you know, they uh, they scared themselves more than they actually healed themselves. What are your um, some of the uh, precautions, let's say, that you could share with our audience about um, what to do if any of those happens and then how to take care of themselves? uh yeah have a really good psychiatrist <laughs> no i mean that's 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 just in jest but um that does help having a really good therapist on the other hand is a strong recommendation i i believe that you know the work that people do when we access the subconscious of our of our minds is deep deep work and has to be respected and so having a therapist or someone in your life that you can talk to, not who will listen to you non-judgmentally, who you don't have to worry about saying stuff because you know it's not going to get back to anybody else. Having somebody like that um, to talk to about your about these experiences is absolutely critical. It doesn't matter if there are drugs involved or not in ac- or medicines involved or in accessing these experiences. What matters is that you're having a psychedelic experience and and which could be like a dream. It could even be a really intense dream, like. There's, that's why there's so many stereotypes of people going to their psychiatrists and psychotherapists and doing dream therapy, because those are some of the most common psychedelic states that we access every day as regular people. So um, I think that is a must um, it, for, for everyone. Highly couldn't recommend that more. Um, having a, uh, so I think some of the cautions, the direct cautions are if you have psych- a psychotic disorder, delusional disorder, schizophrenia, um, or any kind of bipolar disorder, you really want to not. You really want to stay away from psychedelic medicine. They're not for everyone. Um, there, you you want to be if you were ever to try a medicine like that to be extra careful and not take risks um, during the experience. It's good to actually be in the care of a highly trained psychiatrist who knows what they're doing, who can advise you as to how to do it, if to do it at all, um, and to make sure that you're in good hands in case something should happen. Um, and then, you know, some of the other, the other, most of the other contraindications are for things like ketamine are very mild. You know, you shouldn't have like a cardiovascular disorder, really high blood pressure and things like that. But in general, um, there aren't a lot of contraindications to ketamine. There are more for MDMA and psilocybin, but they're not available yet. Um, with MDMA and psilocybin, for instance, you want to taper off of all SSRI medication. You don't want to take any serotonergic medication because psilocybin and MDMA increase serotonin a lot and they increase the functioning of the receptor. And that can cause serotonin syndrome occasionally in people who've taken um, too much, which can be fatal. So we really don't want that to happen. So definitely make sure um, to taper off of SSRIs in situations where uh, MDMA and psilocybin will be ingested. 
um, in general, those are the main ones. And then I think other things that you could do in to, to have a good experience are, you know, practicing setting intention, setting intention around self-gratitude is always a great pl first place to start. Um, anything you can do in your space to to make it kind of like a nest feel where it's really safe and comfortable, comfortable. Um, you're not worried about anything you're going to say or do. You have somebody in the house who is not going to be intoxicated to take care, to take care of you. Um, if you were doing it on your own um, to avoid any issues, it's always good to have somebody there um, in the clinic. Obviously there are all these people there anyway. Um, so, you know, with it's, and, and there's only ketamine involved Um but I think for people seeking ketamine therapy, would highly recommend ketamine-assisted therapy because ketamine-assisted therapy makes sure that everybody gets the talk therapy component of it. And it seems like that is has better outcomes than ketamine alone um, by nature, if not for the fact that all medicines seem to work, psychedelic or uh, mental health medicines seem to work better with therapy. Um, and then the last thing I'll throw out there is a plug for Apollo, which got the first patent for any wearable uh, to reduce unpleasant experiences associated with psychedelic medicine experiences or any medicine assisted therapy, including cannabis. So um, it can be a tool that you can use to, to take with you when you're um, when people are having these experiences. And we have a number of ketamine clinics um, that are actually using Apollo in the clinic now um, to give to their patients in the waiting room and then to take home afterwards if they like, because it helps make the process a little safer, smoother, easier. Uh, Dr. Raymond, what are your thoughts um, or suggestions about people who are uh, not doing this necessarily in the Western world therapeutic uh, places, but they are going into uh, cultural and ritualistic uh, spaces and these are plants that are not necessarily have been um, part of the research lately, such as iboga or ayahuasca and different types of ayahuasca that are all out there and many other type of uh, plant medicine which are are being um, um, part of ritualistic and healing perspective in Amazon or different locations in South America, Africa and different um, places which also have suggested that uh, could support um, kind of shifting and changing even the brain mechanism of people who have had struggle with addiction for a long time. Um, do you know any uh, research or any comments, in anything that you would like to say about that? Sure. I mean, I, I think in, in Western medicine, we often forget that almost all of our medicines originally came from plants, right? If you look back, Aspirin, curare, uh, you know, vitamin cedar, vitamin C from cedar bark, right? Or, you know, like or from uh, vitamin C from to help with um, scurvy back in the day, right? And all almost all the supplements and all the things that we use as medicines, not in their newest forms, but originally came from plants, and many of them from the Amazon jungle, which is where many psychedelic uh, indigenous plants come from, and especially with respect to psychedelic and psychoactive plants. Uh, that have a spiritual background and use history, these plants have often been used by indigenous cultures for thousands of years before we ever had a practice of Western medicine. And so I think it's essential for us to respect where these medicines come, came from and to work with indigenous cultures as much as possible to embrace their knowledge base 
because we don't have all the answers. You know, we have some of the answers. We can we can take care of you if you have a horrible accident and we can treat a horrible infection that could take your life and we could save limbs and we can, you know, do all this miraculous stuff that's life-saving when we hurt ourselves or get into accidents, but we uh, or when we get really bad infections, et cetera. But we are really, really not well equipped to treat chronic illness, um, particularly chronic inflammatory and mental illnesses. And all of our drugs have side effects and um, they require multiple, one or multiple times daily dosing and they have so-so response rates. So, you know, I think it's imperative for us as a, at this particular juncture in, in the world uh, and in 2023 to really, you know, draw upon the knowledge and value the knowledge of indigenous cultures and what they bring to the table around, um, around this ceremonial and traditional use of these medicines and to really look at that in a thoughtful way. And just because, you know, there's, because there's thousands of years of anecdotal evidence is, is not a randomized controlled trial, but it is really interesting. And it does shed light on ways we can do things differently and better in our, in our own treatment uh, programs. And, um, and studying it has even made my, my own, uh, influence my own practice in positive ways. It's helped my patients. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think we also need to be careful because not everyone who's advertising that they are a shaman is actually a lineage trained shaman uh, who who has gone through the cultural uh, traditions. There's no regulations around this stuff. So pretty much anyone could go down and call themselves a shaman, even in the US and provide these treatments and, and these plant medicines. And so it's really important to do your diligence, whoever you are going down there and make sure you actually know that the people you're working with are legitimate, um, real practitioners who have that, that ancient knowledge and don't, won't put you at risk because there's a lot of other people around there who in all over the world who, who don't have that. Um, and those people are around. Um, so, you know, really do the research and make sure that you're not just rushing this, try to find somebody to, to give you drugs in the jungle, but somebody who's actually going to take you through the traditional experience where, you know, which really brings in the richness and the culture of where all this medicine originally comes from and how it was used. Absolutely. Um, last thoughts for coming to the end of our conversation, anything we haven't shared that you really want people to know? I think the, I think there's a really unique opportunity right now in West in, you know, as I was mentioning just a few minutes ago in the field of medicine to, to ask ourselves some hard questions going into the next, this next, you know, generation, this next decade about, you know, what are we doing right? And what are, what could we use improvement on, you know, non-judgmentally speaking, you know, there are a lot of things that as a, as a field, we could be doing better. And a lot of it is not just up to us as doctors, right? There's a relationship with insurance and business and and the business interests, right? And all the things that make cap capitalism in the US work. At the same time, the science says that there are lots of things that we can do as practitioners that are better, but there's there haven't been the there haven't been easy ways to transfer that information from the lab to the bedside for a long time. And now with twenty with our current technology, we can trans translate stuff really quick, right? We can we can take discoveries out of the lab. Apollo is a perfect example of that. And within three years, we could take something out of the lab and bring it into a product that's commercially viable and available for everybody to use around the world, right? And that's pretty pretty crazy. But it's also exciting because that's three years compared to seventeen years precedent for technology to get out of the lab and into the real world. 
So there's a real opportunity here for us as clinicians to speed up that process by working together and by being more open to, uh, you know, working, of course, you know, critically, but working with in multidisciplinary teams, you know, with business people, with, um, with finance people, with marketing people, with engineers, with academic academic institutions, um, you know, private companies, and really try to figure out not just how am I going to solve this problem as a doctor? Oh, this problem's too big for me to solve, but maybe how can I solve this problem with my community, right? How could I bring people together who maybe think like me and maybe some who don't? And let's try to figure out how we can wrap our arms around, you know, what to do to solve Helps help make a dent in the opioid crisis, or help make a dent in the benzodiazepine crisis, or in the um, in in the cardiovascular world, right? With uh, cardiovascular disease and cancer, and you know what can we do on our level that could change, and that's not actually forcing ourselves to just do more work, and to actually and it actually enriches our lives because we get more we get more you know of this, we get more like you know SBMT gatherings, right? Like, you know, events where we can really come together and and share all the fun stuff that's going on in here and actually apply it. Um, and I feel like we all, we, we get siloed, you know, so often in just patient care and patient care is critically important, but we're also researchers and we're also teachers and we're also writers, right? And we have, and we, and we also are advocates and, and we, and we know how to, how to get information out there. We know how to, how to help people heal, uh, in in the in our office and on mass. So um, the more we can do that, the better. Well, I feel blessed, and I'm, I'm always grateful to the Society of Brain Mapping that brought us together. And I've get to meet a lot of amazing scientists. Thank you so much for taking the time to be um, on my show. Um, where can people find you? Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. It was so nice to be here with you. And uh, also grateful to the Society for Brain Mapping and Therapeutics for bringing us together today, um, or bring us together in general, and then do allowing us to do this today. Um, and um, anybody can find me on socials. I always love to hear from you at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me uh, also on my website at drdave.io. And you can find Apollo Neuro at apolloneuroscience.com, also at wearablehugs.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much again for the time you allowed with us. I always enjoy conversing with you and I learn from you all the time. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.